Hey guys, this is my leak and this is my podcast where we deep dive into the topics that resonate with you the most. Today's episode is all about a phrase that has been buzzing across social media and my email inbox for years, and that phrase is imposter syndrome. Most of us have heard of it, but I wondered if we really understand the impact of imposter syndrome and if we had any tools to overcome it. To shed some light on this topic, I brought in two incredible experts who have dedicated their lives to helping professionals break free from the grips of imposter syndrome. Dr. Lisa and Dr. Richard Orbe Austin are co-founders of Dynamic Transitions Psychological Consulting, and they're going to join us today to share their wealth of knowledge on empowering us to advance our careers, boost performance, and experience greater job satisfaction. Now, greater job satisfaction is really important to me because my top two uh, podcasts that I've probably gotten the most spins on are I Hate My Job Part One and I Hate My Job Part Two. So this duo has made it their life's mission to specifically support marginalized individuals in overcoming imposter syndrome. They've written two wonderful books, Your Unstoppable Greatness and Own Your Greatness. I have both of them. They are amazing because they're actionable. They have not only studied this phenomenon, but they have developed actionable strategies to help you conquer self-doubt and embrace your true potential. Now, before we get into this interview, I want to make sure that you stick around after the interview because I got them to give us an exclusive treat. They are offering us a special discount on their imposter syndrome bootcamp course. And they're also giving you a free downloadable tool that will be able to help you. So these are opportunities you won't want to miss. If you're ready to kick imposter syndrome in the butt and step into your unstoppable greatness, I want you to buckle up for a really insightful conversation, some practical tips, and a chance to take your journey towards self-discovery and confidence to the next level. Let's get started. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, I am so excited to have the two of you here today to talk about a topic that has been in my inbox for over a decade that I will be honest, I don't know a ton about. And after meeting you um, at Harvard earlier this year, uh, Dr. Richard Orbe Austin, I my mind just started going in so many directions. And so between the two of you, I want to ask a few questions and I want to start with the term. You know, I'd love to ask you for the formal definition and how someone could identify it in itself. And I don't know if you guys see all the memes, all the terms are floating around the internet. So help us, help us out. Sure. 
<clears throat> so yes. the technical term is imposter phenomenon. So that's the academic, scholarly, kind of correct term to use. So uh, it's it's been popularized as imposter syndrome, um, much to the chagrin of the original authors um, and the academic community. But it's just become popularized in that way. <clears throat> People don't often know it as imposter phenomenon. It's a concept that got originated in 1978 by two psychologists who were working in a counseling center who began to see this experience um, in high achieving women that they were working with, um, who were graduate students, professors, um, administrators, and they didn't see it written about anywhere in the literature. So they ended up writing a paper in 1978 um, called the Imposter Syndrome and high, Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, um, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. And so this is the first time the term is coined. And so over the years, the term has evolved. I think initially they believed it only occurred with women. Okay. About 10 years later or so in the research, you start to see it occur with men. To, the, to date, um, there has been um, no conclusive evidence that it exists more in women than it does in men. Okay. So it is a pretty universal phenomenon gender-wise um, and racially too as well. Okay. So it is the experience when you are capable um, have expertise, have experience, have competencies, and yet you haven't internalized them. And as a result of not internalizing them, you then tend to feel like a fraud in particular right. situations. Okay. Um, when you feel like a fraud, you then tend to either overwork or self-sabotage to cope with that performance anxiety. As a result of that, you tend to be more prone to things like burnout, anxiety, um, different experiences that kind of come as a result of this kind of functioning around this experience of being thought of as a fraud. Okay. Um, and so that's generally sort of how we take a look at it. Yeah. And so just to add quickly, it does not mean that you're an imposter. It means the opposite, right? It means that you feel like an imposter. You discount praise. You attribute your success to luck or someone who you know, you have a good relationship with. And again, you find it very difficult to say, I have these skills, I internalize it, I feel confident. Every particular moment feels like a rehearsal again, that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. That's what we talk about when we talk about imposter syndrome. Okay. Now you said something about like overworking, which I understand, but the self-sabotage, I feel like that's a hard one to figure out. Like, how do I know I'm doing that? Do you have any examples of ways that people might be self-sabotaging with imposter syndrome? Yeah. So the most common thing that we see with imposter syndrome when it comes to self-sabotage um, is the experience of procrastination over long periods of time, followed by intense bursts of overwork. Um, so they typically, because they are high achieving and successful, they will get the thing done, but they'll do it in such a compressed, intense period. There are opportunities for mistakes, emergencies you can't remedy, Things wow. that go wrong that, you know, then become something you cannot fix um, because the, you don't have time. Um, okay. And so that's the most common thing we see with um, with um, imposter. But we also see things like a lack of preparedness. So like, you know, typically for certain things, you'll have to prepare up. And, but people, the anxiety that it provokes around, okay. I don't belong, I'm not good enough, then prevents them from doing the proper preparation for things like a talk or things like yeah. that. So there are kinds of ways that it shows up that are very influential around like the, the imposter dynamic influences the way that they show up for things that require like long preparation or particular Which complex yeah, which seems like it kind of feeds the cycle where if you're not doing it, you're feeling like this, then I can imagine how do I not feel like I'm an imposter if, you know, 
I'm procrastinating. And then because I'm moving so fast, I'm making a ton of mistakes. And it's like, see, I knew it. I wasn't good enough. So go ahead. No, no. And this is what we talk about with the imposter cycles, right? There's this cycle where you anticipate a particular event, you self-sabotage, procrastinate, and then you get a mixed response where you feel like, okay, there were some good things, maybe because I rushed, there were some mistakes. Typically, if you're not dealing with imposter syndrome, you kind of exhale, you kind of reflect upon what you did well, and then you move forward. Someone with imposter syndrome then goes right back into worrying about the next project and goes through the cycle again. Right. Okay. So it's on and on and on in that same yeah. way. And, I, and in addition, the person with imposter syndrome will hyper focus on the mistake making. So the things that they did wrong are are usually a, like amplify this. Right. That don't belong. And then they tend to also then hyper focus on those mistakes by trying to overcorrect, trying to never uh. make that mistake again. Um, which then creates another type of overfunctioning, and then they're hyper focused on this mistake making. Where we want people to learn from the mistake, but you don't need to ho- overcorrect the mistake right. in order to kind of then get to the next place. Got it. So I have to talk about how imposter syndrome impacts black and brown people on this podcast, and some of the consequences for us. Can we please just spend some time? Like, how is it different for us? If it is different. Yeah, so I think you see a lot in the memes and the social media the this um, thing that black people experience imposter syndrome more than white people. You know, right. this has not been verified by the literature. Okay, um, and you know, there's also a lot of stuff saying, oh, there's only white researchers. Actually, the most prominent researcher currently um, in imposter syndrome is Kevin Coakley at Michigan, and he is a black man. Okay, um, studies race. Um, and so he hasn't found it either. And so I think it is pretty, right now we don't have a clear indicator that we experience it more. However, the things that he has found are that when, that he has found that imposter feelings are more significant than minority status distress. So, okay. you know, the, the idea that we are a minority in an, in an environment and experiencing discrimination and bias, that the imposter feelings are more that affect us more psychologically than, than those feelings of minority status or stress, which is massive. Um, yeah. It shows how important imposter dealing with imposter syndrome is for us. It's not that minority status stress, distress is not important. It's also that it is additionally also important right. if you're also dealing with imposter syndrome on top of this. So okay. for black and brown folks, we talk about the double impact of imposter syndrome. So mm. internally you feel like you are an imposter, but then externally whether it's discrimination, bias, microaggressions, you see signals in the environment that consistently tell you that you're an imposter. And right. So that double impact consistently weighs on black and brown folks differently than those of the majority culture. That makes sense. Yeah. And additionally, so- there's been research to show that for black and brown folks, it impacts their GPA, mm. it impacts in college, it impacts their ability to get help and resources during times when they need it, yeah. um, it impacts their mental health um, significantly. Yeah. So there have been significant correlates to suggest that um, it is such an important thing for black and brown folks to pay attention to and deal with. Right. Okay. So I... As someone who has spent lots of years in therapy, you know, everything is like, does everything come back to my childhood? And a lot of times the answer is yes. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about the origin of imposter syndrome. Where, like, where does this come from with us? 
Yeah, so it often originates in childhood. And I think the reason why childhood is such an important component for so many things that we experience as an adult is because it's formative. It is the way we get our original templates on authority, on relationships, on how to deal with conflict, how to deal with pain and suffering. So they're setting up our initial kind of formative kind of perceptions of how to engage the world. Um, Not that they aren't changeable, but they take time to change when you've had, you know, 18 or plus more years exposed to a particular environment day in, day out. Um, And so what we find with imposter syndrome and what the literature has found is that oftentimes there are significant experiences in your childhood that lead to this. For example, family dynamics can be a a pretty significant, play a significant role. And if you had a family that was... um, kind of had trouble dealing with conflict. And as a result of that, you had to be the good kid in the family. You had to be the Mm. one doing the right thing. You didn't want to cause more of a stir in the family. Um, Families that tended to kind of have figures in their, that in the home that were a little narcissistic, that were narcissistic, who kind of wanted the world surrounding them. And you had to just either please what they wanted or Mm -hmm. considered kind of valuable to them. Codependent family dynamics where you felt like you had to be a you had to people please in order to kind of like make sure that nothing rocked the boat, um, you know, kind of environments in which you kind of can got, got labeled in a particular way as a child, either you were the smart one, okay. or the working one, or you, you know, we, we kind of added the, the third one, which is, you know, a survivor of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first one is really about like, you know, you were considered really bright. So things didn't come, things were supposed to come easy to you. And when they didn't come easy, it was a sign to you, you weren't as smart as everyone thought you were. And so it was the beginning of this idea that you were faking it out to everyone. Mm. Um, The hardworking one is the one who, usually there's another one in the family that's considered brighter than you. Um, So you were considered the one who had to work really hard to get anything done. Sometimes we see a significant correlation between that hardworking type and kids who have, who are not, who are not neurotypical, who may have had ADHD or may have had a learning difficulty and it wasn't diagnosed. So they were working so hard to keep Mm. up with everything and they weren't getting the proper supports they needed. So then for them, it, it becomes this feeling of like, I must, I must work hard at everything. Nothing comes naturally. I have no natural te- wow. talents. Um, and the last one, the survivor type was this experience when you were absent of any kind of like feet, feet, consistent feedback around your performance. And so there, and there was trauma usually, or some kind of okay. neglect in the home and you're using your achievements to escape that environment. And so it Ooh. often feels like one mistake and it's all gone and I'll lose everything. Oh, I'm glad you added that one because that one, that one sings, you know, because Mm -hmm. you do feel like that when you were the person who kind of made it out and you're always like, I'm one bad move away from this ending. And Mm -hmm. so I'm just going to overfunction to make sure this doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. which, you know, probably like you said, leads to burnout, which I don't know if you, what you all are saying, is it just me or does it feel like everyone's burned out? Yeah, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's burned out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and and some of it was a result clearly of the pandemic, right? Right. Like, okay. We went into that whole shelter in place. People actually ended up overworking. People thought if you work wow. remotely, people would you know slack off and do other things. They actually had more on their plate because oftentimes they were trying to teach their kids and meeting the expectations of work, and so they tended to really overfunction, overwork leading to consistent burnout. And we saw it just in terms of uh, the consulting work that we did. So many companies okay. were like, oh, 
and do something on burnout for us. Everyone feels burnt out. Everyone feels like they can't manage all of this. And I think it's continued until we talk about this burnout culture now where the expectation is that you're on 24-7. You can right. at all times, including when you're on vacation. Moving forward, it never feels like you have time to just relax. You always right. feel hypervigilant as to the next thing you need to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the return to office kind of policies that have kind of, and people have been really, some leaders have been really intense about, you need to get back into the office three, four, five times a week. I want to see your face. Um, it has been really disruptive to people who to built a life, you know, at home where they didn't right. have to commute. And, you know, now they're having to commute and add hours and yeah. travel and have to re-upend their life all over again. Right. With the kind of coincidental piece of this whole, like, large amounts of like losing jobs in tech and other spaces yeah where there's like this like you know kind of quiet threat if you don't do this you know you could lose right. your job and so i do think it, there hasn't been a period of recovery for many people from mm-hmm. the burnout to really mm. allow themselves to kind of feel recovered yeah that makes sense i have a question that i wonder i just wondered this does everyone experience imposter syndrome at some point in their lives is this a everybody thing it's not an everybody thing. So actually, the research suggests that 70% okay. of people will experience imposter syndrome at, at one stage of their life. And so this is the other kind of myth that we want to debunk, that oftentimes people say, oh, everyone has it. That's just it. You right. move forward. That is not the case. Okay. For some people, they never experience it. They don't have a, a reference point. I think many people who have imposter syndrome who've told somebody, um, and, and the person's like, oh, you're kidding me. That's ridiculous. And you, you can hear the dismissal. Somebody who's never experienced it will easy, easily dismiss it um, from you. And I think there's a nut we always often talk about. Then also people, there's a pe- part of people who've never experienced And then there's a part of people who have the opposite of imposter syndrome, which is called Dunning-Kruger, <laughs> which is when you think you're an expert when you're not. <laughs> Um, oh, so there's a whole another segment. Okay. Right. <laughs> Which the internet, TikTok, Instagram, right. you know, we got a lot of experts now, you yeah, know, so, so I didn't even know there was another side of that. Yes, yes. definitely. Okay. So what I'm going to do is read a listener email and then we're going to get to solutions because we are here for solutions. But I want to start mm-hmm. with this listener email, see what you guys think about this, because I feel like of all the emails I got, this kind of this kind of wraps up what everyone thinks. So here's her email. She says, I see and hear people speaking on things they are minimally versed on and get good reception. Whenever I attempt or think about sharing my expertise, it seems like it falls flat. Is this imposter syndrome or am I just not working hard enough? I am quick to give someone else credit, but constantly doubt myself and my Mm. skills. Let's so, see. I would say for the, to the first part of the question around whether people are receiving your feed, you're kind of you're kind of sharing your expertise in a particular way in a good way. I don't think that's imposter syndrome. That just may be sort of like how you're delivering your message. And okay, like how is it being heard? And like and really being able to get some potential coaching advice or from a mentor or somebody that can help you think about how how to get more people to hear your message. Mm. It reminds me like when we first started on on social. And um, we had like 800 followers or something like that. And I was beginning <laughs> to do videos and they were going nowhere. And I was, <laughs> I was really having trouble. I was like, I, I know this stuff. I know this. And I, you know, like, um, right. and it wasn't getting well received. And I really had to do some inner work and, and think about sort of like, well, 
I'm doing it the way I would want to, but clearly people are not responding to it. I have to think about it. And so I did play with many, many different types of ways of communicating the okay. same message to get a different response and then eventually hit upon different methodologies. But it took me being way outside of my comfort zone mm. to do that and playing with different ways of having someone else hear my message. So um, I do think it, that that part is the second part. I'll let Richard handle does sound like it. <laughs> okay. Well, the second part, the first part, what what's interesting and what I'd ask the reader is what is the evidence that it falls flat, right? Because sometimes Ooh. when you have imposter syndrome, you have these automatic negative thoughts where you mind read and say, oh, people didn't receive that well. Mm-hmm. Stupid. People are not receptive to what I'm saying. Where's the data? That's what we always talk about because sometimes okay. we have these automatic negative thoughts that aren't actually based in reality. And mm. So to counter them, you really need to think about, is it that you know you wanted feedback, they didn't give you any feedback, people start looking away or looking at their watches, or what is the evidence? Or is it just you feeling like, oh, I don't think that they received it well, even though people were receptive to it. Because sometimes, again, it may be in a room of 20, 19 people receive it well, and that one person didn't. Then you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to that negative person. Right. It fell flat. And so that's one. Right. Okay. So if the evidence is there, then back to what Lisa said is certainly, you know, thinking about it not from the imposter syndrome framework. Okay. Second part of the question is, is one of the typical aspects of imposter syndrome where you overestimate others and underestimate yourself, right? Mm. That's a classic hallmark of imposter syndrome where you feel like everyone else is so much brighter, everyone else is working harder, everyone else is doing so much more than I am. And right. so really being able to contest that as well will allow you to conquer imposter syndrome and really disrupt that type of narrative and that type of thinking. Awesome. Okay. So... I'd like to ask for some ideas on tools, uh, some some tools we can like take with us in this podcast when we feel triggered. And then after that, you know, what are some ways to overcome this? You know, is can we overcome it or do we just is it something we just deal with? Yeah. So I will say, first of all, we're going to give your listeners like our toolkit. Um, so they'll actually have a concrete awesome. OK, we're giving you a toolkit. We love and that. So. Um, one of the pieces of the toolkit, for example, around the, the email question from your listener um, is around sort of chronicling your actual um, accomplishments and successes. And so we have an activity in, one of, in our first book on your greatness that really um, helps people to look at the wins that they've ignored, what we call wow. achievements. Okay. Um, because sometimes if you can look at the hidden achievements, the bigger ones are easier to look at. Right. Um, but it'll help people oftentimes begin to think of things that they often dismissed as things that they had achieved um, because they, you know, because they had these kinds of qualifiers to it. Oh, I didn't do it alone. Mm. Oh, you know, I didn't get like, I didn't get the, the best grade on the thing or I didn't get like all the accolades. So we tend, unless things are in an absolute perfect condition, we tend to ignore them as accomplishments. And so to really help people to look at some of their hidden accomplishments and achievements and begin to see ways in which um, they have been hiding a lot of their achievements or kind of, so I think really cataloging them can be really helpful. And then also sharing them with other, once you've cataloged them, sharing them with others. So it's not this private thing inside of you. It actually starts to become public because we're very bad at sharing our wins and accolades and our moments. And we often feel like it's bragging or being narcissistic. Mm -hmm. We're doing other things that aren't true. They're just sharing your accomplishments and asking people to celebrate with you. Um, So getting into that habit of doing that is one of the methods. Okay. And the the whole reason that we wrote Own Your Greatness is because we wanted to have a solution-focused 
workbook that oftentimes when we've heard about imposter syndrome, we thought, talked about and saw the theory of it, what it was, but never the solutions. And so we right. came up with this model called Clarify, Choose, Create the Three C's that takes you on the step-by-step journey to really overcoming imposter syndrome, starting first and foremost with really thinking about what your story is, your actual, where your origin story, where did it come from, right? Okay. Was it because of the family dynamics? Was it because of particular role that you had, the hardworking one, the smart one? How do you recognize that and, and shift that, right? Okay. And then, as you said, understanding when you're triggered. So yes. sometimes we may not even recognize that we're being triggered. We just start to feel like, oh, we have a new project. We meet new people where we have a new job. And then you start having these thoughts and feelings of, oh, I'm going to be exposed. This is the time now with this new job, I'm finally going to be exposed. People are going to find out that I'm not right. So understanding your triggers and knowing how to actually counter them. Right. Okay. So that's the this first part of the model is really looking at clarifying your origin story, clarifying your triggers, and then finally your narrative, right? And so oftentimes when we think about our narrative, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, we have oftentimes people with an imposter syndrome have a thin narrative, which is, you know, I was successful because I was lucky or I was successful mm. because someone liked me, rather than to Lisa's point, what are those hidden achievements? What are those strengths? What are those right. skills? And so that piece of the model helps you to clarify. And then you go to choose. And one of the key pieces is speaking your truth about imposter syndrome, that okay. there's no shame in saying I have imposter syndrome. Again, it's not a mental illness. Let's be clear right. about it. Okay. It's a phenomenon. So oftentimes people suffer in silence because, as Lisa said earlier, people will dismiss it or because you're typically high achieving, people will say, what are you talking about? Right. On this, this and that. What do you mean you don't feel good enough? You're being silly. So mm-hmm. people sit in silence, but you need to speak up about it. Okay. Uh, and also speak up about and own your actual strengths, uh, accomplishments as well. And then we talked about the actual automatic negative thoughts, right? These thoughts okay. that you walk with that tell you you're not good enough, whether it's mind reading, people don't think you're smart enough, labeling when you do something wrong, you're like, oh, I'm so stupid. How could I be so stupid? Uh. Right? Being able to counter some of those automatic negative thoughts. Uh, and then finally, in that particular phase, it's about self-care. Because wow. when you tend to deal with imposter syndrome, we talk about how overwork really plays a role because it makes you feel like the only way that I can actually succeed is to overwork so I'm not viewed as an imposter. Wow. And we talk about the last uh, phase of the model. Yes, yeah, so okay. the, last, the last phase is really about um, really creating opportunities for community and showing up in different ways. And so we talk about in that particular last um, phase is really kind of choosing the environment, like making sure that the environments around you like help and support you in this new way of thinking about your world. So having what we call the dream team around you. um, So having good and healthy mentors that are not trying to kind of create models of themselves in you, actually allowing you to kind of really fully actualize what you want for your life. Um, okay. Having somebody who's a good grounder, when you make a mistake, they kind of help you put your feet back on the ground. An action planner, somebody when you feel stuck, help you take the next action forward. So those become like, we, there's a set of, you know, six of them. And it's important for you to kind of have, a, have at least one you or two need a team. Those category. Mm-hmm. Yes, you yeah. do. Nobody does this alone. No. We might look like we do, but none of us Right. Does. And I think sometimes people think when they aren't entrepreneurs, you know, that they don't, you know, this is something, you know, for business owners, but it's like, you need mm-hmm. a team. Doesn't matter if you're working in a company, working for yourself, you yes. need a dream team. Okay. Yes, you do. 
Yeah. Okay. And then um, really about sort of breaking roles. When we have imposter syndrome, we tend to take up familiar roles. We like to be the super person and come in and dive into the rescue and save people. Uh, we don't necessarily look at our bandwidth, whether we can actually do that right. or we should be doing that. Um, we tend to be people who are knowledge hubs. We want to have to know everything about a subject in order to feel right. confident. And when we get called out on something we don't know, we feel like, oh, clearly I'm not as smart as everyone thinks I am. Um, you know, we also have to be able to be risk takers. We tend to be risk averse um, right. and tend to be very afraid of how that risk will affect our standing or what happens to us. So learning how to take calculated risk. So there's a bunch of different ways in which we need to expand the way we show up in the world and the way we feel competent in the world. And then lastly, the, the last step is really helping people to recognize that, look, this is a process and it's mm. an up and down process on your way to the upward trajectory right. and that, you know, we're, we have to get a deal with what the difference between a lapse and a relapse. Mm. So a lapse is falling back into experience of imposter syndrome, but then recognizing I have skills and tools to deal with this and actually using the skills and tools where a relapse is like, forget it. It's always going to be here. Right. You know, there's I can do about it. So I might as well, you know, just accept it. Um, right. That's a relapse. And so really helping people to kind of really recognize that this process is a lifelong process. Okay. The tools will make it easier to, to deal with it every single time it becomes easier. Amazing. Okay. And so I have this tool. I'm going to provide it for you. And I appreciate the two of you coming and helping us better understand this. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Any words of encouragement? Well, as we said, you know, for my perspective, it's really about recognizing that imposter syndrome is not a mental illness. So it's not about being cured per se. Or pathologized. Or pathologized, right? Okay. It's really about ultimately really looking at the fact that you can defeat this. You can minimize its influence in your everyday functioning, right? That it is possible. It does not benefit you. That's the other thing that is oftentimes flying around on the internet that it's, you know, helpful to you because it pushes you forward. There's no yeah. actual evidence. Okay. And then this notion of, oh, well, oppression actually caused impossible. That is not the case. It sustains it and sustains actually benefits it. from it, but mm -hmm. it does not cause imposter syndrome. So it's important to recognize that and to know that you have agency to change this. Wow. Yes. And I, I think for me, the last thought I will leave is something that Richard actually, you know, I've suffered from it and pretty talk about it pretty openly. Um, and something Richard said to me when I was really struggling, as he said, when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And so I would leave you with that is that work as hard for yourself as you would for anyone else. And it's a game changer. Ah, that's perfect. I thank you both. What a conversation. How insightful was that talk with Dr. Lisa and Richard Orbe Austin? There's so much to digest from that interview. And as promised, they are generously offering my listeners a valuable toolkit and an exclusive 20% discount on their imposter syndrome bootcamp course. Now, to grab your free toolkit, you want to head over to ownyourgreatness.me slash toolkit. I'm going to say that again. It is own your greatness dot me slash toolkit. And for that 20% off of the boot camp, you want to go to own your greatness dot info slash my leak. Once again, own your greatness dot info slash my leak, M-Y-L-E-I-K. 
I don't want you to miss out on these incredible resources to own your greatness and conquer imposter syndrome once and for all. This is my leak. You know where to find me. I want to hear what you think about this episode. So tweet me, thread me, Instagram me, do those things. I will talk to you all again soon. Until next time.